scripture passage on which Pastor Tony will speak comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my, my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard of this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's the word of the Lord. Thank you, Andrew. We're looking at the Gospel of Mark, one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that begins the New Testament and tells the story of Jesus and what he did, what he said, how he behaved. Mark is uh, particularly vivid based on Peter's memory of Jesus, and it is the shortest and most concise of the Gospels. And we're coming to the culmination here. There are only 16 chapters in Mark. We're uh, coming towards the end of chapter 10. And we're coming towards Jerusalem, where everything will culminate. So let's have a look. <clears throat> they were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. If you remember, most of Jesus' ministry was in the north of Israel, in Galilee. When Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, is the Anointed One, is the Christ, with that confession of faith, Jesus' work, his ministry, is done, and he goes and sets his face towards Jerusalem and the final mission that he came on. And you see, the disciples are astonished, the followers are afraid. They're marching down the Jordan Valley towards Jerusalem, and they've become who knows how many people, the 12 disciples plus all their followers on. And everybody must have been wondering, what's going to happen when Jesus arrives at Jerusalem, the center of power, with this large column of people? We don't really know how many there were, but it must have been a lot. You know, thousands of people used to come out to see Jesus in the wilderness. And here, as he gets towards the center of Israel and the more built-up regions of Israel, there must have been a lot more people. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. Again, this is the third time 
And here he describes in detail exactly what's going to happen. This is a prophecy. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. This is amazing stuff. This is a prophecy. And it's very specific, and it's very detailed, and it is very coherent, it's very linear. Jesus knows exactly what he's going to face when he gets to Jerusalem. Jesus was no victim. Jesus was not caught up in forces or situations he did not understand. He was on a deliberate mission with a deliberate purpose. He had a vivid and clear understanding of exactly where he was going and what it would cost him. And it's no surprise, because Jesus is God, second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God knows exactly what happens in our world. All of this was prophesied 700 years before Jesus. Isaiah 50. I offered my back, this is the Messiah, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Everything's going to happen to him. Why? Because the Sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. By the way, some of you might not know this, but we started a, uh, a men's prayer group, and we based it on this passage. We call ourselves the flinty chins. It's not saying that we are Jesus. It's more aspirational, as you can probably tell. But based on this passage, this deliberate attempt to do God's purpose no matter what the cost. He, the Messiah, took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. He bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. This is a description of what God will do through his Messiah, through his chosen one. And it is exactly what Jesus knows is going to happen to him. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was punished. The Lord lays on the Messiah, the one he sends, the iniquity of all people. And he is punished for the transgressions of God's people specifically. After he has suffered, this is still Isaiah, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied 
By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, why do I go into all that detail? Well, this is the third time that Jesus has explained to his disciples exactly what's going to happen. This clearly is something that he wants them to know, that it is a crucial thing to know if you are going to be a disciple. And it is, and has been throughout history, one of the sticking points that people have had with Christianity. The world does not like the idea, and by the way, I don't just mean like people who are not Christians. Uh, many Christians feel the same way. They don't like this idea. Technically, the term in theology for this is penal substitutionary atonement. Penal, meaning legal justice and punishment, judicial punishment. Substitutionary, someone is punished in the place of another or as a substitute for another. And it is an atonement. That is, the punishment that someone bears on your behalf ends alienation from God, pays the price, extinguishes the problem. And many modern people don't like this idea. In fact, throughout history, they haven't liked this idea. It's too bloody. It's too barbaric. It's too primitive. Surely we're beyond such things. Sam Harris, an, uh, an atheist, wrote this recently in one of his books. The notion that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that his death constitutes a successful propitiation of a loving God is a direct and undisguised inheritance of the superstitious bloodletting that has plagued bewildered people throughout history. Don Barker, another self-described uh, atheist. It does no good to say that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. I don't have any sins. But if I did, I wouldn't want Jesus to die for my sins. I would say, no, thanks. I will take responsibility for my own actions. Elizabeth Anderson, another self-described atheist. The practice of scapegoating contradicts the whole moral principle of personal responsibility. It also contradicts any moral idea of God. Scapegoating was the idea that you put the sins of the people ritually on an animal, sometimes a goat or a sheep or whatever, and then drove that animal out into the wilderness to kind of remove the sin from the people. But it's not just atheists, it's not just people outside Christianity. When I was at seminary, um, I went to Princeton Seminary, there were a number of students and professors who tried to come up with alternatives to the cross. They didn't like it. It's too bloody, it was too icky, it was too primitive. They were always trying to come up with other ideas. I was reading Christianity Today last week. There was an article by I don't know if he was a professor or just kind of a freelance theologian who was challenging the idea of atonement, of substitution, because he thought that that was beneath a loving God who could just forgive everybody. And in that same article, this is amazing to me, there's a song that we sing often, a hymn, In Christ Alone. 
According to Christianity Today, there were more than 10,000 American churches who refused to sing that hymn because it's all about the cross and it includes the line, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They don't like the idea that their loving God would ever be wrathful, would ever demand punishment, would ever inflict punishment on Jesus, a sort of cosmic child abuse is a phrase often used. So how should we think about this? You know, here is Jesus for the third time talking about the cross. Well, I'd point out to you, if you, perhaps some of you are, are worried about this idea, the whole of the Old Testament is premised on the idea of sacrifice. The Passover, the moral law, the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament points to this idea of sacrifice. The whole idea is Jesus as the Lamb of God, as he was recognized by John the Baptist. The whole idea is that Jesus was that sacrifice, the Lamb of God sacrificed to pay the cost of people's sins. The cross. The cross makes no sense if atonement doesn't exist. Why on earth would Jesus, flinty-chinned, march his disciples to Jerusalem just to watch him die on a cross if it didn't achieve anything, if it had no purpose or significance beyond him just dying? It makes no sense. And finally, it undermines and overturns the gospel. Atonement is not just an add-on idea to Christianity. It is the central idea of Christ, of the cross, of the gospel. The gospel can be said many ways, but one way of saying it is sin is putting ourselves in God's place. The gospel, grace, is God, through Christ, putting himself in our place and paying the price. It is not a trivial idea. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make here. It's not like a smorgasbord where you take or leave it. Christianity without the cross, without Jesus' sacrifice, without atonement, is really just a fable. It's just a story of long ago. It has no significance if there is no atonement. So how should we think about this idea? After all, it is barbaric, bloody, primitive, ghastly, perhaps the most awful way, one of the most awful ways you can imagine dying. How should we think about it? How should we think about a God who would work that way? Well, a few ideas to think about. First, this idea that God could just forgive. Why can't God just forgive? You know, he's a loving God, he can just forgive every problem, right? You've heard me say this before. There's a, uh, a theologian from Croatia, Miroslav Wolf, a Christian, and he watched the genocide. There was a, a civil war, and uh, there was a genocide against people of the opposite religion. Muslims and Christians in Croatia started to kill each other. And they wouldn't just kill each other. They would do it in front of, they would kill children in front of parents, they would mutilate and rape and murder wives in front of husbands and husbands in front of wives. They had rape camps. 
they had public executions. I mean, it was ghastly. And the people doing this were people from the same village. And Miroslav Wolf points out, how do you deal with that? You know, the, thankfully the Civil War ended, and these people had to figure out how to live together. How do you live in the same place as someone who's killed your child, or killed your spouse, or killed your grandparents? How do you do that? Saying to them, well, just forgive, is not going to cut it. That is not going to work. And the result would just be endless vengeance and revenge. Only if you believe that there is a God who provides significant justice, actually punishes wrongdoing, does it make sense? That is the only resource that you can bring to such a situation. A supernatural resource, bigger than human violence, human revenge, human evil. It has to be about God. We do not have the resources to forgive. And even for God to forgive, if he is just, it must be costly. There is significance. And we all know this, by the way. If you go to somebody's house and you knock over an expensive lamp and break it, the owner of that place might say, oh, don't worry about it. I forgive you. But the owner then has to pay the cost of replacement or has to live without the light. It co it's costly. Somebody pays the cost. Now, you might want to bear the cost for a friend, but what if a stranger shows up and does that? What if a thief shows up and steals your light? Who then do you want to pay the cost of that light? Intuitively, we know that wrongdoing has a cost to somebody. Justice cannot be done by just saying, oh, let's just forget about it. Let bygones be bygones. Justice does not work that way. And where is the wrath of God? What are we talking about when we think of the God who demands punishment? We get a glimpse of it in the next section, verse 36. Then James and John, the son of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You know, Jesus is just revealing these majestic themes, the essence of the gospel. And they perhaps think that they're going to march to Jerusalem and he's going to become the king and they just want a place in his court. Or who knows what they're thinking. They're certainly not thinking about what Jesus is talking about. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? What's the cup? Throughout the Old Testament, there is an image of the cup of God's wrath. A cup filled with wrath that is poured out on injustice, on an evil, on people who do wrong. And that's the cup that Jesus says he's going to drink. And the baptism? For us, baptism is being washed clean. But what washes us clean? Jesus' blood. 
him paying the price for our uncleanness. Can you drink the cup of God's wrath or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Not water, but his own blood on the cross in agony. We can, they answer. No, they can. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those to whom they have been prepared. What's he talking about? The cup of wrath that Jesus drinks turns into the cup at the table of the family of God. And when we are baptized, we are baptized into that family. Jesus, going to the cross, drinking the cup of God's wrath, in our place, allows us to drink this cup and come to this table. It's a substitution. Exactly the same idea. And who is on Jesus' left and his right? On the cross, there are two criminals. Not disciples, not his followers, criminals, because that is what the cross is all about. Jesus goes penally to the cross, substituting for us, and pays the price to make us at one, atones, at one with God, with the criminals. That's what he's talking about here. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are God as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to, be, to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Jesus is uninverting the value system of the world. In the world, kings sent their people and their soldiers, their followers, to fight for them. In the kingdom of God, it is the king who does the fighting, who does the dying, who does the suffering. And they're just squabbling. They have no idea. These, by the way, are the disciples that are going to found the church. Think of your own life. You know, as I was reading this, I was thinking about my own life. How many times, how much time do we spend just thinking about stupid things when we're following a God, a Savior, a Messiah who would do so much for us? We squabble, we worry about stuff, we chase after baubles. And we have given such an extraordinary person to follow, to worship, to put it at the center of our life. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. Now I'd like to unpack this last verse to end, because I think it helps us understand this idea of substitution. The atheists are right. If you had somebody punished in your place, you know, you, you put the blame on them and they were punished for you, 
died for you, and they hadn't done anything, they were innocent, and they took your place, that would be wrong. That would be morally wrong. The only way the substitution makes sense is if you are in a relationship. If you were here last week, you remember we talked about the difference between a limited relationship, a contract you make with someone, and a covenant relationship, an unlimited relationship. That's the relationship that God makes with his people. That's the way that uh, a man and a woman get together in the covenant of marriage. Unlimited liability, unlimited intimacy, unlimited relationship. Well, look at the end of that verse. To give his life as a ransom for many. The New Testament is written in Greek, and so the words here are in Greek. And that word ransom is a Greek word, lutron, which means in English, to pay a ransom, to buy back, to redeem. It was used in Greek to talk about the ransom that you paid if uh, a soldier was caught, or a king or a leader was captured, and you had to pay a ransom to get them back. It also was used of slaves who bought back their freedom or were bought out of slavery. But the idea of giving a life as a ransom for many is actually an idea that goes back to the Old Testament. There's a Hebrew word, gawar, and it means in English to redeem, to ransom. But it has a specific meaning. Usually it's translated as guardian redeemer or kinsman redeemer. If you read the book of Ruth, it is all about this idea. How Boaz redeems Naomi and Ruth by marrying them, marrying Ruth, and bringing them back into the family of God's people. What is this idea? Guardian redeemer, kinsman redeemer. It is the idea that if a member of your family, a member of your tribe, is in debt, is in slavery, is, as uh, Ruth and Noemi were, destitute outside of Israel, then it is your moral responsibility to pay the price for them to be restored. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. You know, in the book of Job, after Job has suffered so much, he says this, I know that my Redeemer lives, kinsman Redeemer, guardian Redeemer, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. So what's the point I'm trying to make here? Random substitution of people for each other in punishment makes no sense. It, they're right, the atheists are right. It would be immoral. But if you are in a covenant relationship with somebody, an unlimited relationship, then you can substitute for them. You can take on their debts. You can take on their problems. You can take on their lostness, because in a covenant, two become one. In the Trinity, by the way, three become one. In a human marriage, two become one. 
they become part of the same family. That is why it is appropriate for Jesus to die for his people. Because God has made a covenant with his people. It's where the idea of this all comes from. So I'm going to end with a story, which some of you have heard this, but it's, it's the one story that in my mind brings this all together. I can't remember where I heard it. So imagine there was a broken world, a broken kingdom. It's been ruled, it's been ruined by war and conflict, by a cruel and unjust king. And finally he dies. And all the factions, you see it is a broken world. Finally the, the war ends and all the factions are winning. They declare a temporary truce. They put their hope in the son of the king. And he promises he's going to reunite the kingdom. He will rule justly. He will, he will rule uh, under the, the rule of the law of the land impartially and now without favor to anyone. A just, wholesome kingdom. Well, he's tested early. It is discovered that someone is stealing from the national treasury, just as in the old days under the old corrupt king. Now the prince had promised justice. And he says, whoever is taking the money will be punished. There's an investigation. And then, to everyone's horror, they discover that the person who has been stealing from the treasury is the prince's mother. She's carrying on her old habits as she used to with her husband. The friends of the new prince are horrified. The enemies are delighted because now he's in a quandary. If he lets her off, it shows there's no real justice in the kingdom. Nothing has changed. It's still who you know. What are your connections? It will not be an impartial law. But if he punishes his own mother, he will be revealed as being just as cruel and inhuman as his father. What is he going to do? Cold inhuman justice or favoritism? Love or mercy? Grace or punishment? So the final day comes, the fateful day. Everyone gathers. They're all going to see what he's going to do. Day of judgment. His enemies gloat. His mother is brought weeping in front of the crowd. The prince is sitting on the throne of judgment. There's absolute silence. What's he going to say? Guilty, he pronounces. And there's a gasp. How can he possibly punish his own mother? No leniency. And the punishment is to be publicly whipped, flogged on a rack in front of everybody naked. The mother is distraught. The enemies gloat. Everybody is amazed. But then something extraordinary happens. The prince gets down off his throne of judgment, takes off his crown and his robes, strips himself of all symbols of his glory and power, and takes his mother's place on the rack. And then he orders justice to be done, but not on his mother, on himself in her place. 
I think that is a beautiful picture. Well, it's a ghastly picture, actually. But it is a great picture of what Jesus did in our place. Jesus goes to the cross not just to die. It is an act of justice where the wrath of God on sin is paid for by Jesus in our place. Now, what about this idea that God is wrathful? I told you he's just, but what, what does it mean to be wrathful? Well, what is God wrath? What is it directed towards? It's directed towards sin. If you think of parents punishing children, it doesn't quite cut it. My favorite image to think about God's wrath is to think about a surgeon and a child with cancer. Cancer is very like sin. It is the cells of the body rebelling against the body, becoming disorderly, not being part of the whole anymore. What is the attitude of a surgeon towards cancer in her daughter? Cold, calculated wrath. Because the surgeon knows the cancer will destroy the life of the daughter. Do you think there is anything more wrathful than a mother whose daughter is dying of cancer? Do you think there's any mercy shown towards that cancer? Or will she devote all the skill and talent, all the ability, all the time and energy it takes to eradicate that cancer? That it's God's wrath. We are as children. We are filled with things that are disorderly things ultimately that will kill us. And he is absolutely opposed to sin anywhere, every place. God contests for his people every time, every place, everywhere. And he will never stop. And that's why Jesus came into the world. That's why the flint and chin, that's why the determination, no matter what the cost, and that's why we can worship. In a moment, we're going to go to this table, and we're going to drink the cup that is sweet because he was willing to drink that cup of wrath. I want you to think about that as we go to the table. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we can scarcely comprehend what it meant for you to go to the cross. But, Lord, we know that because you did, because you took our place, you receive wrath, and we receive grace and love. You lost your father. We gained a father and a family and a name and a home. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you, Lord, that you would go to the cross for us. We thank you in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.